just before we jump in, I, I forgot to mention this morning, uh, Pastor John is not actually sleeping in and preparing pizza rolls for football Sunday. Um, he is actually preaching God's Word up in Taos this morning. As some of you have heard and know, there is a potential little kind of church plant revitalization thing going on up there with a, an old-time Tausenio named Tony Sandoval, and they're, they've been looking for folks to help fill the pulpit. Uh, so John is up there preaching this Sunday, and he's going to be giving a little pre uh, presentation about, our, you know, just kind of our denomination, because these folks are interested in possibly just partnering up to be connected with some like-minded folks. So pray for that. Pray for Tony Sandoval and the, the uh, Christian Church in Taos, New Mexico, this morning. We are now in Exodus 20, the second commandment this morning. The title is Idols for Destruction. And I want us to remember as we begin this series on the Ten Commandments, we've been walking our way up through Exodus. We're now in Exodus 20. We're slowing down. We're going to do one commandment at a time. What we're really looking at here is, is this question. The, the children of God, the children of Israel, they've been, they've been saved. They've been rescued. They've been shown the grace of God. They've been loved. They've been brought into the covenant family, the kingdom. They've believed. They walked by faith through the waters. They've been, as it were, baptized. They're this new and renewed holy nation. They've been rescued. And now how shall they relate to God? How, how shall they be in relationship with God and with one another? And so the Ten Commandments are really God's revealing the, the way that that is to be done. Here's what it means to live with me and live with one another. To live before the face of God, to love your neighbor as yourself, and in a sense to kind of bring back on earth the realities of the garden that were lost and marred because of the fall of man into sin. So it should be beautiful. It should be wonderful. It should be acceptable, and as we are well aware, many in our day and age call foul. Are these commandments true? If they're true, are, there e are they even needed? Is there anything good in them? I mean, isn't this just some archaic scribblings of some Bronze Age nomads? Why? Give them heed for your life, for your soul, for your joy, for your flourishing in 2021. This week, I came across a video uh, by a guy named Sam Harris. Sam Harris, you know, 10, 15 years ago, was known as one of the kind of the four horsemen of the new atheist movement. Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, and another guy I can't remember. But Sam Harris, though, was, well, Christopher Hitchens, sorry. Um, don't want to forget Christopher Hitchens. Uh, I was about to say Sam Harris was the most articulate one of the bunch, although I think Hitchens probably gets that award. But Sam Harris, you know, you know, engaged on this massive speaking tour to basically just, you know, say to the world, religion poisons everything. God is nonsense. There's no need for it. And he, he gave a lecture on how uh, he might improve the Ten Commandments. And he gets to the Second Commandment. And you can hear the audience as he speaks sort of laughing Throughout, he says, Really? That's the second commandment? Don't erect a graven image? Are you serious? Is this really the second most important thing that God wanted to tell his people? Is this really as good as it gets ethically and spiritually? Harris asks rhetorically. I mean, he says, anything, anything we could put here would certainly improve the Bible and human ethics. 
How about this? You know, don't mistreat children. Or how about this one? Don't pretend to know what you don't know. Or, or how about this one, folks? Just don't deep fry all your food. Haha, <laughs> chuckles in the audience. Harris asks, I mean, can't we live without this, the second commandment? Don't make a graven image? I would think we would manage somehow. Which brings us back, of course, to Psalm 115 and the call to worship, where the nations say, where is your God? So is it true, as we study the Ten Commandments, as we think about their relevance, uh, not only today, but for our own hearts, to bring us to Jesus and help us to bring back in Jesus the garden to bear on the world? Is it true? Is Harris right or is Yahweh right? This is one of those moments where I can almost hear the Apostle Paul saying, by no means. <laughs> you see, first of all, the stuff that Harris wants you know, being nice to children and justice and treating people with equality and all these things that we just take for granted because of the Christian worldview, uh, that we are resting on the Christian capital that, that we are enjoying in our culture still. These things that he wants, they don't grow on trees. Go out and spend a little time in nature. It is indeed red in tooth and claw. Nature eats the weak. The law of nature ultimately is might makes right, where the strong, by any means necessary, and justifying themselves as they go by their own strength, seek further control. Control of God, control of others, and really, this is, this is the heart of religion. A God like me, whose demands I can meet. And if I happen to be the one in control at the time, other people who I can force to meet those same demands for the good of the God and my good as well. This is idolatry. False gods in our image. And as convenient as it might be for a, you know, a pastor to read a quote from one of the, the new atheists, uh, of course we know that the Bible never lets us off the hook. We're, we're here too. And so as you've heard before, uh, John Calvin famously said that the human heart, you know, expanding upon Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things. You know, who can know it? He referred to the human heart in Latin as a fabricum idolorum, a factory of idols. This is our heart, and as we excavate it, we, we see as we live our lives that in, indeed it, the roots of our sin nature go deep. Our wanting to be our own gods, our loving ourselves, our feeling justified and finding it really easy to point the finger at the person on the corner and go, yeah, I don't know. What'd you do wrong in life? How'd you screw up? Probably deserve it. So in the second commandment, we are here. And it reminded me of this great scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is actually talking to the Corinthians about idols. I mean, Corinth was a city full of the worship of idols. Paul says, look, no, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And this factory of idols, this stew of temptations, it's common to us all. But listen, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That's not the same as the bumper sticker, he won't give you more than you can bear. Yes, he will, and you'll need to run to Jesus, and he will help you and be faithful. But he won't be able, he won't tempt you beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape 
that you may be able to endure it. That's verse 13. Now verse 14, short and sweet. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So the Ten Commandments, therefore, and the Second Commandment in particular, provide us a way, a way forward to flee from idolatry. I'm going to look at just three things this morning about the Ten Commandments and the Second Commandment in particular that help us flee from our idols and flee to and be embraced by Christ. The first is that we have a firm foundation. Secondly, a right diagnosis. And lastly, a good prescription. A firm foundation, a right diagnosis, and a good prescription. So first of all, a firm foundation. What are we dealing with when we talk about the Ten Commandments? Merely commands, merely imperatives, do these things. If we look at the Ten Commandments in that sort of a reductionistic way, we're going to get in trouble. Religious people in particular get in trouble because like the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount, they think, I can do that. I haven't murdered anyone today. I know how to rest and I don't have a little statue in my house. Done, done, and done. But as John said last week, it would be better to understand the Ten Commandments as the Ten Words. The Ten Words, that's actually the word that's used in Hebrew. And it's a, it's a technical term for the stipulations of the covenant. Do this and you will live. Do it not and you will die. Do these things and you will have life and life abundant and joy in me and in you and in the world. Most scholars understand the Ten Commandments then not as a, a, a legal code of concise imperatives, but really as a foundational document for the nation of Israel. This is life. Look, the world is full of brokenness. We just prayed a minute ago about 9-11. Think of all the things that you would change, that you would do better, all the injustice you've seen and you've experienced. Here's a way, says the Lord, a foundational document to live with me and to bless the world. A framework, a worldview for the rescued to relate to the one who has revealed himself. A worldview for the rescued, that's us, to relate, have relationship with God who has revealed himself. Another way to put it, in grace, in union with Christ, in the grace of God, the rescued ones, toward the garden. In grace, toward the garden. You see, that's why, if you're a Christian this morning, that's why you exist. Not just to come to church, although I'm very glad you do. Had a couple of those early COVID Sundays of like five people, that was a little rough. So I'm very glad to see you. I love it. It's great to see all your little masky faces and, you know, whatever. But no, we exist because we are, we are bringing to bear the truth of God's word and life and the life of Christ by the Holy Spirit on the world. Where there are weeds, we're pulling them and we're planting a new garden. Which is perhaps why in the Ten Commandments, you see commandment one through four deal with our vertical relationship with God and commandment 5 through 10 deal with our horizontal relationship with one another. Because it's not enough to just try to be a nice person. Because again, these things don't grow on trees. We need a God who made us, who loves us, who gives us his grace and strength, and then we can relate to one another properly. So that's what we're dealing with. And the next question, I think, is really how should we understand the commandments, the law, the nature of God's law? And I think 
You're going to hear a little bit of this repeated in the first few sermons. We'll try not to be too redundant every week, but I really think this is so important. And if you're a baby Christian or if you're here and you're not a Christian, this may be the first time you're ever hearing it. We're so glad you're here. But that the nature of the law, the Ten Commandments in particular, the nature of God's law is good. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, even as he is professing his, abil- his inability to keep the law, that the law is good and holy and righteous because it is a revelation of God's eternal and perfect character. God is not like, you know, Marvel superheroes up there changing his mind, being arbitrary or capricious. There is no euthyphro dilemma with Yahweh. As eternal as Yahweh is, is eternal as his character, and thus the law is unchanging. We have a solid rock we can stand on. Simultaneously, the, the law shows us, hey, this is how the world is designed to work. Now look, if you strive to do the Ten Commandments, it doesn't mean you're going to avoid suffering. In fact, if you try to do these things in the grace of God, you're going to face some serious suffering, like Jesus did. But in general... And on principle, if we live according to God's good law, the revelation of his character, we're living kind of in the flow of the river of how God designed the world to work. So the nature of the law is good. It's also expansive. And I hinted at this earlier, but each of these 10 words has a narrow and a broad meaning. And each has both a negative and a positive meaning. So, of course, in the second commandment, the narrow meaning is simply don't make for yourself a little carved thing to bow down and worship it because you think you can encapsulate the deity there and control your life. But the broad meaning is, oh my goodness, we have all kinds of idols, all sorts of places we run to for, for coping, for helping, for dealing, to try to be the master and commander of our own ships. So that would be the narrow and broad sense on the negative side, but each of these has a positive implication, and I, I just can't wait to get to, to all of this, because, like, for example, you know, do not murder, okay, that's simple, I can do that one, but positively and broadly, it means be about life. Be about life. All life, especially the life that you don't like and don't think deserves God's grace and is annoying to you and frustrates you at work at the water cooler. Be about the blessing and the curating and the cultivating of the goodness of life. You see how it's not as simple as, don't murder, don't do this, tisk tisk. So negative and positive, broad and narrow. The best example of this, of course, in the New Testament is Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount, where again, the Pharisees were like, well, we're righteous because we've done all this stuff. And he goes, let me show you that you haven't, actually. Not at all. You say, I have not murdered, but if, you, if you're angry with your brother, if you hate your brother, you've broken the command. And so in the, in the same breath that the law is good, I just, I have to remind us, I have to remind myself daily that, that the law is not good to earn me favor before God by keeping God's laws unto my own righteousness that I might be justified. And here, again, we talk about the three uses of the law. The first use of the law is to reveal us, to show us how deep our need is as a tutor, as a teacher, so that we might run helpless and hopeless to Christ, being exposed, now naked and ashamed by the law, so that we might be clothed, as it were, by God in Christ. That's the first use of the law. 
It's, it's good because it's God's character, but it's bad for us to try to earn God's favor and our own righteousness because there's no way we can really keep it. Certainly not perfectly. Certainly not according to the standards that a holy God would recommend. The second use is simply that the law is just good for civics. It's good for the world in a common grace sense, that any society that seeks to order itself justly would do well to order itself along the just words of God. And the third use of the law is that by grace, through faith, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, your counsel, your advocate, your guide, that the law really, really is good to follow it and to do it. If you love me, which implies you have been loved by me, you will what? Obey my commands for your joy, for your flourishing. So we might just ask why. Why why does God give the law? And why does he give it in this way? To, To drive us helpless to Christ, to be filled by his spirit, to pursue him in grateful, gratitude-filled obedience, because really this is the heart of God. And I think you guys will just, you're going to miss, you're not just going to miss Exodus 20, you're going to miss the whole Bible. You're going to miss Jesus if we don't get this right here, that the heart of God is not to punish but to bless. The heart of God, his law, the revelation of his perfect and holy character, here's how you should live now for your joy and flourishing, is not to punish, but to bless. And a great analogy here, of course, is parenting. Because they've, you know, they've done all these recent studies about you know, the, this whole paradigm of parenting that seemed to be dominant for a while. You know, my kids don't need rules, just kind of let them do whatever they want and explore the world. has actually ended up to be, it's very unloving. It's not just unloving, but it's unsafe. And then kids grow up, they have no grit, no resilience, no ability to really interact with the world because they've come to learn that it's all about them. God gives his children his character, his law, his boundaries, not to, not to diminish them, not to destroy them, not to punish them, not to punish, but to protect and to promote life, your life, and in you and through you, the life of the world. I mean, how does that feel, you know? Why are you on this planet? Well, I'm on this planet to uh, work really hard, make a lot of money, retire, and then just chill. Which a lot of you folks who are retired have told me that that's, no. You have to have even more purpose when you have more time. Imagine just saying to someone, you know, my, the reason I exist on this planet is to be known and loved by God, to walk in his ways, and I exist for the life of the world. So in the commandments of God... The second, especially, we have a firm foundation. Now, drilling into the second commandment, we get a right diagnosis for our hearts. It would seem easy to just relate this commandment to those living 2,500 years ago in the ancient Near East, where idols were perhaps more prevalent and more obvious. But what the second commandment does is it shows all of us our propensity to live in the old man, in the flesh, in the way of Adam. And at the same time, because it is given to God's children who are already rescued, it shows us that our hope is in Christ. So don't make for yourself any idols or carved images. Okay, well, what is an idol? Really? They didn't just believe they were little blocks of wood, of course, or paintings or statues or Asherah poles or 
you know, totems to Molech. An idol was a place believed to contain the essence of the God. Here at the idol, heaven and earth meet. The deity is present. That's why pyramids, right? They're called ziggurats. That's why they built all those pyramids, because they would take their idols to the top of the pyramid, and they believed that heaven and earth could meet, therefore, at the top of the pyramid. And the idols would say, here's what we demand. They would give it, and then the people would tell the idols what they demanded. And based on a very conditional relationship, perhaps they would receive blessings and perhaps curses. This, of course, led to entire societies seeking to be in control and being controlled. And as one scholar put it, it was, it was sort of the, the example of a two-way death scheme, a two-way death scheme that people were constantly striving and exhausted, constantly striving and exhausted to control a finite little God for its finite little benefits, and at the same time, constantly confounded because all of these little gods were really just men and women writ large. Men and women writ large. Zeus and Aphrodite and, you know, Iron Man. Again, this is the heart of religion. Trying to control a finite God for finite benefits and being controlled by those same finite gods who are no gods at all. This may make us ask, I mean, at least me as I studied this week, do we even have idols nowadays? I mean, really, do we, do we even have idols in the same way or in a way that would make the second commandment really relevant to your hearts this morning to hear and know the gospel of Jesus? And I think the answer is, yeah, you know, we, we be, you bet we do. Because, I, I mean, I, I like the designation homo sapiens, right, man that is rational, but I really like St. Augustine's better, homo religionis, man that is religious, man that was made to worship, man that was made to adore and worship and give praise and honor and glory to something outside of himself. We are made to worship. And so we absolutely have idols in our own day and age. Uh, Tim Keller, who many of you have heard of and some of you know, tells this, you know, he had this kind of famous illustration to his people. He's preaching in Manhattan in New York City, and he said, you know, do you think we have idols in our own day and age? We sure do. In fact, right here in Manhattan, we still have child sacrifice. And everyone, like, oh, what do you mean? You know, we're, we're sophisticated. You know, New Yorkers, you got to be kidding me, man. We read, we still read the paper. Keller said, well, let me, let me give you an example. You know, I know, I know folks that are working 80, 90 hours a week in sector A, B, or C. Their whole life is dedicated to climbing and clawing their way to the top and making money and making a name for themselves. And they, they haven't seen their kids since they were born. It may not look the same as an offering placed at the pole of Molech with the burning fire, but functionally, it's no different. The question for us to be able to diagnose our own idols is this. Where do you go for hope? Where do you go when you're stressed or you're tired or you feel cornered? Where do you go to cope with the difficulty and pain in your own life? Where do you go to feel secure? Here's another way to ask the question. If your life were a house and the Lord were allowed to come into that house and, in, you know, examine the rooms, are there any rooms that God isn't allowed into? Are there any places God can't touch? Would there be any area in that house 
which again, you wouldn't say this if the Lord were standing before you, but functionally, it's like, Jesus, I love you. You're awesome. Thank you for church. Thank you for my study Bible. Got my daily devotional. Got you on Sunday. We're good, but don't mess with that. My wife, my husband, my kids, my grandkids, my country, my expectations, my work, my name, my degree, you name it. That's the place where our idols lie. And I think this should make us just collectively say, why? Why, Lord? I mean, why has it got to be this hard? Why can't we just get over it? Why can't you just read a really, really good self-help book? Some of you are pretty good readers. Decent enough to pick up that book at the airport with 10 rules to just live your good life and just read it and do it and figure it out. And of course, we already saw this in Psalm 115, but here it is again. The real issue of idols isn't what's external or extrinsic to us, you know, whether it's the pole or the statue or the person or the bank account or the whatever. The real problem is the heart. It's a problem of misplaced and misordered loves and affections. It's always been this way since our first father, Adam, that there's a little piece of our heart that's saying, did God really say, does God really love me? Does he really have what's best for me? And wanting to be our own gods. I think this is the hardest part. Because again, if we could just do a little cleanup, you know, a little go see a life coach and get it all, get everything in order, do some self-care, get a massage, take care of your priorities, think a little bit about you. If that's all it took, oh man, this would be no trouble at all. But the sad part and the hard part is that this is, this is in our hearts. This is why we need grace. This is why Jesus had to come to die. This is why Jesus didn't just come down with a megaphone and say, you know, listen up, everybody. I just published a book. You can find it at your local Barnes & Noble and in every airport Hudson News. Please go buy it and read it. It's great. Follow the rules. Jesus Christ had to come as the God-man, keep the law perfectly to be righteous, and then die unto the law perfectly as the perfect sacrifice for sin, taking the weight of our law breaking upon him so that for us the law is not ultimately crushing. So that we who are trying to make a life for ourselves because of our pride and live our life on our own terms who always want to take the creator and make him a creature in some way or another and take us mere creatures and exalt ourselves, might have hope. Might have hope. So at this point, we should, we should allow the word of God to do its work, to do its surgery on us, to check ourselves. Where are our idols? Where are the the areas in our life where we have objects of affection that ultimately they don't speak, they don't talk, they don't have hands, they don't have noses. We know that. But it's worse because they're killing us. And those who worship them become like them, Psalm 115 says. We become like them. We become like what we worship because we are ultimately shaped by the things we love most. We need to check ourselves. Do the objects of our affection and our love tell the true story of God to the world? And I mean, I'm really convicted here. How many of you all in the last week have complained a little bit, like me, about, oh, Santa Fe? 
Don't raise your hand. Because I don't want everyone's hand to go up in the room at once and hurt somebody. You know, oh, the weeds, or oh, the homeless people, or oh, I mean, something. How many of us in this last week have actually done anything about it? And I don't mean, you know, your, you know, feigned outrage of a Facebook post where you're fired up about it for 30 minutes, you know, until Mark Zuckerberg can produce enough dopamine to get you to click on an ad. That's me, you guys. That's us. And the Bible says there's real consequences. We see this in the text. Unto generations. You've seen this before. I mean, families that that have deep trauma or deep addiction, these, these things can get passed on. They do. It's not hopeless. There's hope to break out of those cycles. But we have to understand that the idols we worship, it's, these things are being passed on to our children and our children's children. Here we're confronted. Here we're laid low. Here we're put at the cross. That our disobedience is consequential far beyond us in our own generation and our obedience matters. So where can we go? Where can we go? Don't you so often, in light of your idols, feel like Paul in Romans 7? You know, things I don't want to do, keep doing. The things I do want to do, I struggle to do. And so there's a little word in our text that is so hopeful, so joyful, so wonderful, so incredible for you and for me in the second commandment that it's just exploding off the page. Indeed, it's the first time we've, we've really seen this, sub, this idea explained that God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. Jealous does not mean that, you know, he's mad because so-and-so has more toys than he does. It's not a human or an earthly idea of jealousy. God's jealousy here means that he is, the, he is the king, he is the warrior, he is the priest and the poet and the prophet, and he is the one who is going to fight for the hearts of his people. His people, who even though they know what they should do, keep making idols. God is jealous for his own glory, that's true, for his name to be known among the nations, for his image bearers, all you little imago dei of God, you image bearers of God, to be telling a true story of God in the world. He's jealous for his glory in those things, that's true. But he is also jealous for his children to believe him. And again, I think the saddest piece of our idolatry is this, at the end of the day, we really do struggle to trust that God has what's best for me. Think of something that's happened to you recently that was really hard. Think of a challenge or a suffering or a pain that you've been through in the last five years. Do you really believe? Like, well, yeah, God didn't abandon me in that. He has what's best for me. On our best days, in our best moments, we do. But man, so often that whisper sneaks into your mind and mine not only condemning God for his injustice, but condemning us, that there's no way he could love someone like you. Or if he did, you wouldn't have been through that. God is so jealous for his children to believe his goodness, to believe his way, to believe that he has what's best for them, to trust him, to live in him. And so, listen, this is what I, I think it's so important that we hear 
when we study the law, positive and negative, narrow and broad, that even in our law-breaking, God has already declared for all of history publicly in the man Jesus Christ, he wants you. He wants you. He wants to rescue and restore and redeem and be in relationship with you. Yes, you. Your name, your full name, like your mama used to say it, your age, where you're from, what you've done, all the things that are you, he wants you. I love the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Man, go, go home and reread that one if you want a little bit of a tour de force. God tells the prophet, basically, you know, go and marry this unfaithful woman. Have children. He does. He marries her and he's with her. And what happens, of course, she ends up being unfaithful. And it's not just that she's unfaithful. She's basically a prostitute. She goes and she sells herself to her lovers. Not only does she find lovers, but she ends up giving herself away and her money away to these lovers, even though by implication she didn't necessarily have to. That's what idols do. They're always taking. They're always demanding. It's never enough. You're never enough. They're never satisfied. And then God comes to Hosea and says, take her back. I can't take her back, Lord. Look at what she's done. Look at where she's been. Look at who she's been with. What is everybody going to say? What about, all the, what about all the sin? God says, take her back. I want her. I have set my love upon her. Unlike the idols who are always demanding and never giving, always taking and never responding, God is the one who gives himself and says in himself, through the death of Jesus, his son, I will satisfy the demands. Everything she's done, all the consequences for her sin, I will satisfy those things. And not only will I satisfy the wages of her sin, which is death, but I will now give abundantly of my love to her. And Hosea goes, you can't. You can't set your love on someone like that, some gross, disgusting, adulterous person like that. And God says, that's exactly what I do. I delight not, not to set my love on the lovely or those who look like they've got it all together and, oh, I don't have any idols or I don't have any need. No, I delight to set my love on the unlovely. Because ultimately, it is, it is those people, it is us when we have been rescued in such a profound and beautiful way who will turn around and face the world having faced God, truly knowing our purpose. So lastly and quickly, I promise, not only does the second commandment diagnose our heart, Jesus gives us the medicine. We get a right prescription for our purpose. Here's where this commandment is a broad yes. Okay, don't worship little G gods, superheroes that can't help, that can't save, that don't know you by name, that are always demanding. Worship the true and living God. Give him praise and glory for what he's done through Jesus, his son. And now go. Go to your neighbors and go into this world with freedom and worship and praise on your lips and be a shining light to the world. That is the charge here. That is what we are not only empowered to do, but charged to do in this commandment. Don't worship graven images? Okay, do worship God and do it publicly and do it with your neighbors and do it joyfully. Recently, in our prayer meeting, I think it was actually Margaret who said that so many, so many churches are not known for what they do, they're known for what they don't do. <laughs> and so many churches, so many Christians, so many religious people are just kind of known for what they don't do. We don't do that. You know, we don't eat that, we don't drink that, we don't hang out with those kind of people. 
The second commandment, do you see, is an invitation to be known for what we do, do. We are those who worship the true and living God, who conquers and loves our souls and our hearts and set his love on the unlovely, who crushes our idols so that we can go out into the world and replant the garden. And not just people who look like us and act like us and we like, but all the image bearers of God, all who need God's justice, the weak, the wounded, the sick, the broken, the needy, everyone. We can be those who worship God so that he fills up our cup to overflowing that, that we might leave here and actually God changes our hearts so that when we see the downtrodden and the problems in our city, the Lord helps us in his kindness to repent from complaining and grumbling and gossiping to turn to Jesus who does something for us so that we might do something about it. That is the way. That is the way God has provided. A firm foundation for our lives in the revelation of his character and goodness to us. An honest diagnosis of our hearts, though, but doesn't leave us without medicine. He gives us Christ and a right prescription for our purpose. Do not make idols means do worship God and do it boldly, do it loudly, do it brightly, do it in such a way that our friends and neighbors go, man, I've heard a lot about churches. I've heard a lot about religion. I've known some Christians, but I really, I want that. I want that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word to us in the second commandment. I just love, Jesus, how each of these commands is an opportunity not only to live rightly with you according to your law, but to see your, your beauty and your grace to us. Lord, certainly the law drives us helpless and hopeless to you. Lord, if we're honest, we have all kinds of idols. And yet what happens when we're driven to you? We are, we are embraced we are included, not excluded. We are embraced and covered, not naked and ashamed. We are empowered to obey these very things which you have told us are for our good and for the life of the world. And what a beautiful purpose, Lord. You bring us to this table to feed us, to bless us, to meet us, to give us your holy and heavenly food by faith, to meet us with your real presence here spiritually, to fill us, to fill our cup overflowing. Because this is the prescription for our purpose. We are for the life of the world, not, not to contain a God in a little image, control and being controlled, but no, to be set free by your grace through Christ and to share it in real and loving and practical ways with everyone around us, just as you have done for us at this table. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen.